This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. St. Louis, September 23rd, 1806. Sir, it is with pleasure that I announce to you the safe arrival of myself and party at twelve today at this place with our papers and baggage. In obedience to your orders, we have penetrated the continent of North America to the Pacific Ocean, and sufficiently explored the interior of the country to affirm with confidence that we have discovered the most practicable route which does exist across the continent by means of navigable branches of the Missouri and Columbia Rivers. With respect to the exertions and services rendered by that estimable man, Captain William Clark, in the course of late voyage, I cannot say too much. If, sir, any credit be due for the success of that arduous enterprise in which we may have mutually engaged, he is equally with myself entitled to your consideration and that of our common country. The anxiety which I feel in returning once more to the bosom of my friends is a sufficient guarantee that no time will be unnecessarily expended in this quarter. The route by which I propose traveling from hence to Washington is by way of Cahokia, Vincennes, Louisville, Kentucky, the Crab Orchard, Abington, Fincastle, Stanton, and Charlottesville. I am very anxious to learn the state of my friends in Albemarle, particularly whether my mother is yet living. I am with every sentiment of esteem your obedient and very humble servant, Meriwether Lewis, Captain, First, United States Regiment Infantry. This letter, from which an excerpt served as our opening quote for this episode, was a coda to a journey that spanned thousands of miles and crossed a continent. Since they set off from their camp near St. Louis on May 14, 1804, Meriwether Lewis, William Clark, and their compatriots in the Corps of Discovery had encountered many peoples and seen sights unimaginable to their contemporaries on the east coast of North America. Their safe return would inspire countless others to set off westward to seek prospects in new lands. As described by Stephen Ambrose, quote, Lewis was the advance agent of Jefferson's Indian policy. He was able to do exactly what Jefferson wanted because he knew Jefferson's thinking so well. He had announced that Jefferson was the new father of the Red Children, had served as mediator to establish peace, had warned the natives of the power of the United States, had promised that American trading posts would soon be set up in their country, had offered them steady jobs and a secure income if they would go to work instead of war, take furs rather than scalps. If the policy succeeded, commerce would rule in Upper Louisiana. Happy red warriors would dance around the campfire with their good friends, the white agents. Guns and other manufactured goods would come up the Missouri. Prime furs would float down to St. Louis. The policy Lewis was establishing represented, in Jefferson's thinking, only a first phase. Jefferson knew that such a system of commerce would not last long. Americans whether U.S. citizens or recent immigrants, would push west. No power on earth could stop them, certainly not the feeble U.S. Army or the distant government. The safe return of the Corps of Discovery to the eastern half of the continent meant that, whether any of its inhabitants could have imagined in 1806 what shape it was about to take, change was about to stampede across the continent, and despite the promises of peace and prosperity, there would be many decimated by the oncoming horde. As we reflect on that, I'd like to take the opportunity to welcome you, dear listener, to the presidencies of the United States. 
I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Steve Guerra for providing the intro quote to this episode. Steve is the host of not one, but two great podcasts, The History of the Papacy and Beyond the Big Screen. Whether you are interested in papal history or the history behind cinematic classics, Steve has you covered with excellent, insightful content. You can find both Beyond the Big Screen and The History of the Papacy anywhere fine podcasts can be found. I'll also post links on the Source Notes page for this episode, as well as the podcast social media. The United States to which Lewis and Clark returned in September 1806 was much more on edge than the nation that they had left, particularly in the western portions of it, though the tensions over the situation with Spain stretched across the nation. As discussed a couple of episodes back, our old friend Francisco de Miranda had been making the rounds on the East Coast seeking financial and political support for his mission to liberate South America from the Spanish. On February 2, 1806, he set off with a group of supporters from a U.S. port bound for Colombia. Now, there were a couple of major problems with this. As stated in episode 3.31, it was rather widely known that Miranda aimed to challenge Spanish authorities and had been equipping for a filibustering expedition. Despite this, Miranda's ship was allowed to go without any challenge from American authorities. To add to the complication, one of the members of Miranda's party was William Steuben Smith, the grandson of the former president of the United States, John Adams. Further, Adams's son-in-law and the younger Smith's father, William Smith, also known as the surveyor of the Port of New York, had been involved in the planning for the expedition, but couldn't actually go on it because he was, well, the surveyor of the Port of New York, and being gone for so long may look a little suspicious. We discussed this briefly back in episode 2.25 on Adams's post-presidency, but now we must examine the ramifications from the perspective of the Jefferson administration. Though Miranda and his expedition made it to Colombia, they were soon arrested and charged with insurrection. Thus, the details of the plot came to light, and before long, the French minister to the U.S., Louis-Marie Turot, speaking on behalf of Spanish minister to the U.S., Erujo, who, as we discussed in episode 3.31, was no longer welcome in Washington, protested Secretary of State James Madison. According to Turot, Madison, quote, was in a state of extraordinary prostration. It was with effort that he broke silence. Having an executive department appointee involved in a plot against a foreign government was a serious matter, especially when Smith, after being indicted for violating U.S. neutrality laws, testified, quote, that the expedition was begun, prepared, and set forth with the knowledge and approbation of the president and of the Secretary of State of the United States. Ultimately, Smith and another conspirator were acquitted but Smith was dismissed from his position as surveyor. Increasingly, it seemed like the U.S. and Spain were on the path to war, and nowhere was that more apparent than in the Orleans Territory. Though the official Spanish withdrawal from the Louisiana Purchase had largely been completed by 1804, key Spanish officials, including the Marquis de Casacavo and Juan Ventura Morales, remained in New Orleans. And they were not alone. They had a force of 60 men with them. They were also not twiddling their thumbs. Morales had set up a land office to sell rights to land in West Florida, despite the fact that the U.S. still officially protested that that colony had been part of the Louisiana Purchase. Though Orleans territorial governor William C.C. C. Claiborne was finally able to get Morales's land office shut down, the amount of time and effort that it took to do so, and the continued presence of agents of the Spanish government undermined the authority of Claiborne and the U.S. in New Orleans. Worse than that dispute, though, was the standoff on the Sabine River. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As discussed last episode, the Freeman expedition up the Red River had been turned away by Spanish forces before completing its mission, and 
as noted by historians Donald Chipman and Harriet Denise Joseph, quote, Anglo-Americans to the east of the Spine were particularly incensed by this display of Spanish high-handedness since the determination of the western boundary of Louisiana had not been reached. On the Spanish side, the troop buildup had by June 1806 reached nearly 1,400 men, with the majority of that number in the vicinity of Nagadoches. This had not gone unnoticed by the American government. And again, as noted last episode, the Jefferson administration had ordered the commanding general of the U.S. Army, General James Wilkinson, to the border to address the situation. Because of his position in St. Louis, Wilkinson was the only person readily on hand in the western U.S. with the authority and the know-how to take control of the troops and position them to properly defend the nation on that border. Wilkinson, however, was missing in action. And with each passing day, it seemed that Wilkinson was not going to take action in time. As we know from previous episodes, dear listener, at this point in history, Wilkinson was a man with conflicted loyalties. Though he was the top-ranking officer in the Army and the governor of the Louisiana Territory, Wilkinson was also a secret agent who had pledged his loyalty to the Spanish crown, as well as a conspirator plotting with Aaron Burr. As noted by Wilkinson biographer Andrew Linkletter, quote, If he, i.e. Wilkinson, acted as a loyal commander against Spain, its invasion was easily countered. If he acted as a Spanish agent, the consequences were incalculable. Protected by the army, New Orleans was safe. Left vulnerable, it could fall to assault from the Mississippi or to an internal revolt. Unsupported by Wilkinson, Burr could be contained. Supported by Wilkinson and the military following he could count on, Burr's conspiracy became a genuine insurrection. All of his maneuvering over the years had led James Wilkinson to the triumphal point of being able to dictate the fate of a sizable portion of North America. For Wilkinson, though, this was a bitter victory, as this was also the point in which he was confronted with a harsh reality. His beloved wife was dying. As mentioned in the last two episodes, his wife Nancy was suffering from tuberculosis, and month after month, her condition got worse. As described by Linkletter, though Wilkinson was a bit of a ladies' man in his younger days, after he met Nancy and they wed, quote, no one, not even those who charged him with the most despicable treachery to his country, ever accused him of infidelity to his Nancy. Nancy had stuck with him through all the twists and turns of his career, whether she found herself and their family enmeshed in Philadelphia society or quote-unquote marooned on the frontier. Now, though, their love story was nearing an end, and whether it was a convenient excuse to give him more time to weigh his options or his devotion to her demanded that he put her needs over the security of the nation, Wilkinson would not leave St. Louis to travel downriver until August 22, 1806, and when he did, Nancy was with him. As her condition was worse in the heat of the summer, this delay allowed the temperatures to cool some and likely made her travel a bit easier. The Wilkinsons sailed down to Natchez, where James arranged for her to stay at the Concordia Mansion. It was there that he learned that a Spanish force had occupied a small American outpost at Bayou Pierre in July, and Wilkinson quickly realized that the time for him to decide who to throw his support behind was quickly approaching. Meanwhile, President Jefferson was growing increasingly concerned about the situation in the West. Secretary of War Henry Dearborn reported to Jefferson in early September that, quote, General Wilkinson had not left St. Louis on 28th July, and I cannot account for his delay. In his letters to me after the receipt of his orders, he engaged at all events to be in Fort Adams by the 25th of July. I have received no letters from him for several weeks. Between that and reports coming in from various sources, the president was growing increasingly alarmed that, on top of possible war with Spain, the nation may be facing a threat of disunion. Thus, on October 4th, Jefferson arrived back in Washington, D.C. from his sojourn at Monticello, and a couple of weeks after his arrival, called on his cabinet members to come together on October 22nd to discuss the situation. The reports that were coming in from various parts of the nation weren't just coming to Jefferson. Secretary of State James Madison had received a couple of reports from Pennsylvania about former Vice President Aaron Burr's dealings with that state, 
and Postmaster General Gideon Granger relayed information that he received from someone that we last discussed back in episode 3.28. Following the events of the Treaty of Tripoli that we discussed in that episode, which ended the Tripolitan War, William Eden decided it was time to return home, but he had no intent of quietly retiring. Rather, when Eden arrived in Chesapeake Bay in early November 1805, his plans were to head to the nation's capital and talk with leaders there about the way their ally, Hamid Karamanli, and his forces had been betrayed by Tobias Lear in the treaty negotiations. In Eden's opinion, the Jefferson administration, through its agent, had thrown away a golden opportunity to end the Barbary threat once and for all. As described by Richard Zacks, though, until he reached Virginia, Eden had no inkling that he was returning as, quote, a national hero and not just a minor celebrity, but a front page of every newspaper in America military hero. For more than two months, unbeknownst to him, the nation had been applauding his exploits. After being feted and lauded along the way, Eden arrived in Washington, D.C. on November 22, 1805, and immediately set about his business. As previously discussed, there was the matter of the debts that Eden was said to owe by the State Department. Seeing himself as having held up his end of the bargain, Eden wrote Secretary of State Madison asking that this debt be considered settled and requested compensation for other debt incurred in public service, asserting that, quote, my finances are low and I'm extremely desirous of returning to domestic life. The Jefferson administration, however, had one more request of Eden before they'd see about doing something about that debt. The president and his cabinet were committed to supporting the Treaty of Tripoli in order to end the war, and all of Eden's statements about how the administration had betrayed their partner, Hamet, were starting to get some traction in the press. Perhaps if Eden could just, oh, clarify that the U.S. had never given a solid assurance to Hamet that they were going to help him claim the throne of Tripoli, the administration would show due appreciation for the returned hero. As Richard Zacks explained, quote, Eden stood yet again at a strategic crossroad in his life. He could back the president by downplaying his disappointment over the treaty and the handling of Hamet. By doing so, he would be ensured a long status as a national hero and might be shortlisted for an appointment as a U.S. Army general. He also still owed the government the huge sum of $40,000 for his unsettled expenses in Tunis and could expect favorable treatment. Or he could stand honest to what he perceived as the administration's failings. If you can believe it, he actually followed the path less trodden and stood by his convictions. He informed the president that, quote, it is impossible for me to undertake to say that the Bashaw has not been deceived. Though Jefferson would not respond immediately, he did start gathering information that could be used against Eden. On January 13, 1806, Jefferson sent a special message to Congress about the Treaty of Tripoli in which he characterized Eden as a quote-unquote zealous citizen who was out of step with the administration. Again from Zacks, quote, The speech seemed well-crafted and apt to crush Eden, but Eden continued to have his supporters in the halls of power. As described last episode, Congress in 1806 was in a feisty mood and not as prone to accede to the wishes of the chief executive. Thus, the Senate set up a committee to investigate the situation of Hamid Karamanli and his request for aid from the U.S. After a short visit with his family, Eden returned to Washington, D.C. to testify before the committee. Now, we've returned to this winter of 1805-1806 in a few episodes, as there were so many diverse people who converged on the nation's capital at around the same time. Hopefully you'll remember, dear listener, that the former Vice President Aaron Burr was also around during this time, so it shouldn't surprise you that Burr and Eden's paths crossed. I should note that the accounts of their meetings come from Eden, and as noted by James Lewis Jr., quote, Eden's later disclosures took different forms and said different things over time. However, given Eden's well-known dispute with the administration, it is easy to understand why Burr would seek him out. As described by Zacks, quote, the two men began drinking together, sometimes in Washington taverns, often in private. Burr began to probe the open wound of Eden's anger at the administration over Tripoli and over Jefferson's recent attempt to humiliate him. Though maybe a bit sympathetic at first, Eden grew deeply disturbed by Burr's plot. 
Eden claimed to have met with Jefferson at the time in order to persuade him to send Burr on a diplomatic mission abroad, possibly to Spain or Britain, in order to get him away from the United States and thwart his plan. But there is reason to doubt whether this, in fact, actually happened. Regardless, by October 1806, Eden did find someone in Washington who was willing to listen to him, his fellow New Englander, Postmaster General Gideon Granger. Granger, in turn, looped Secretary of State Madison in to hear Eden's details about his conversations with Burr about the plot. By late November, information supplied by Eden found its way into a Boston newspaper. Don't worry, Eden had approved of the copy before publication. I am getting a bit ahead of myself, though. Let's back up a bit to late October when, with all of these various accounts coming in to multiple members of the cabinet, President Jefferson sat down with the heads of the executive departments to discuss the situation. Present at the meeting on October 22nd were Madison, Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, Secretary of War Henry Dearborn, and Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith. Unfortunately, Attorney General John Breckinridge was absent from the Capitol due to an illness that had started in early June. Breckinridge had attempted to heal himself by going to a health spa at Olympian Springs, as was the fashion at the time. And though he had experienced a brief upswing, he soon found himself ill again and had, in fact, written to the president the day prior to the cabinet meeting, apologizing that his plans to return to Washington were delayed. Though initially assembled to discuss the situation with Spain, the cabinet soon turned its attention to all of the information coming in about Burr's plans. As Jefferson summarized in his notes on the meeting, quote, During the last session of Congress, Colonel Burr, who was here, finding no hope of being employed in any department of the government, opened himself confidentially to some persons on whom he thought he could rely, on a scheme of separating the Western from the Atlantic states and creating the former into an independent confederacy. He had before made a tour of those states, which had excited suspicions, as every motion does, of such a Catalanian character. The administration ultimately agreed unanimously to send, quote, confidential letters to the governors of Ohio, the Indiana Territory, the Mississippi Territory, and the Orleans Territory, and to the District Attorney of Kentucky, of Tennessee, and of Louisiana to have Burr strictly watched and arrested, quote, if he committed any overt act unequivocally. Now, looking at the list of folks to be sent letters is rather telling. The fact that the governors of Kentucky and Tennessee were omitted from being notified tells that the administration felt they may have been compromised in Burr's numerous visits there with some of the leading figures of those states. The omission of the governor of the Louisiana Territory, though, Jefferson explained in his notes on the cabinet meeting. Quote, General Wilkinson, being expressly declared by Burr to Eden to be engaged with him on this design as his lieutenant or first in command and suspicions of infidelity in Wilkerson, being now become very general, a question is proposed, what is proper to be done as to him on this account, as well as for his disobedience of orders, received by him June 11th at St. Louis, on which business he did not leave St. Louis till September. After three administrations, dear listener, is this finally the time when Wilkinson's past catches up to him? The cabinet met again two days later to discuss how to address the imminent threat to New Orleans, be it from the Burr conspiracy or the Spanish. Given all of the effort that had been expended to secure that city and its crucial strategic position near the mouth of the Mississippi River, it was clear that steps would need to be taken to ensure that it remained in American hands. Thus, with another unanimous decision, the administration decided to reach out to Captains Edward Prable and Stephen Decatur to take command of a naval detachment based in New Orleans that would be augmented by the USS Argus and eight gunboats sent from the East Coast. Prable would be the senior commander and, in consultation with Orleans Territory Governor William C.C. Claiborne, would, quote, have great discretionary powers. An agent would also be sent on Burr's trail with the authority to consult with governors along the way and, quote, arrest Burr if he has made himself liable. The cabinet deferred making a decision about Wilkinson, though it did intend to send communications to various governors to be on guard for, quote, any surprise of our ports or vessels. 
finally, after so many warnings and alarms, the administration was taking swift action, or so it appeared, that day. The next day, October 25th, the president and his cabinet met once more. The mail had arrived from the West, and in the various letters and reports contained in that post, none mentioned, quote, any movements by Colonel Burr. Thus, Jefferson and the administration concluded that, quote, this total silence of the officers of the government, of the members of Congress, of the newspapers, proves he is committing no overt act against law. Though the special agent John Graham was still to be sent on his mission, the orders to be sent to Prable Indicator were canceled, and the messages to be sent to the Western governors were of a more vague nature to be on alert. As described by Lewis, quote, More than anything else, the crisis in Jefferson's cabinet in late October 1806 was a crisis of information. The nature of the situation and the technology of the time meant that the government back in Washington was trying to make decisions for officials on the ground hundreds of miles away, using information that could be out of date and not knowing when the orders might be received in the West or what new developments might have happened in the meantime. Starting to move forces from other parts of the nation, in addition to not knowing when exactly those forces would be in place, also meant sending up some red flags that something was amiss. After the initial reaction, it seems that, upon reflection, the president and his advisors saw that, though the various reports they had received warned of a conspiracy, there was nothing in any of the information that they had on hand, which was a true smoking gun. There was no incontrovertible proof of the conspiracy, just speculation, observations, and hearsay. Even Joseph Hamilton Davies, the district attorney in Kentucky, who had done the most thorough investigation to date, hadn't returned anything that was admissible in court. No, they had to catch Burr in the act. They knew he was scheming and resourceful, and it was obvious that, even after being politically sidelined and scandalized, Burr was going to continue to be a threat, unless they could convict him by the book. If they acted too quickly and he got wind that the administration was on to him, he'd just go underground until the coast was clear and he could try again. Thus, the administration opted for caution. Again from Lewis, quote, The very fact that Graham carried and used a cipher key provides early evidence that the administration did not trust the mail. Any letter from Graham to Washington would have passed through the hands of numerous postmasters and post riders. A few well-placed agents would have sufficed to intercept all letters addressed to the president or department heads from the Ohio Valley. Though they needed as much information as they could get, the president and the cabinet could not trust that Byrd didn't have agents poised to control the few threads of communication between East and West. Though the administration wouldn't learn until later what was happening, let's head west to see just what was going on. General Wilkinson and Natchez got word of the reports in the Western World newspaper of his role as a Spanish agent. Wilkinson dismissed the rumors and joked to the Surveyor General of the Mississippi Territory, Isaac Briggs, that, quote, It must appear strange to you that I, a Spanish officer, am now on my way to fight the Spaniards. But it seems that concerns were growing in Natchez, just as they were in Washington, that the commanding general of the army may pull a Benedict Arnold at any given moment. Still, Wilkinson proceeded from Natchez up the Red River to the headquarters of the commander on the ground, Colonel Thomas Cushing, where he arrived on September 22nd. Wilkinson finally appearing on site put an end to months of confusion and delay. Cushing had attempted to hold things together, but his authority was limited and he had received conflicting orders from Secretary of War Henry Dearborn and General Wilkinson. Meanwhile, Governor Claiborne and the Mississippi Territory's acting governor, Cowles Meade, had attempted to cobble together a plan involving militia to see their respective territories through until the regular army was in place to defend against Spanish attacks. But Claiborne had trouble getting the militia in his territory together. And, as noted by Claiborne biographer Joseph Hatfield, quote, Claiborne was never quite certain as to how much support he would be able to command from the people of New Orleans. Wilkinson had the authority to actually make things happen, but the question remained 
just what exactly he would do with his authority and the 1,200 men gathered at Natchitoches. Wilkinson reached out to the Spanish leaders to see about both sides gathered on the border, calling a timeout to allow their respective governments time to negotiate. With what seemed like little warning, Spanish General Nemesio Salcedo ordered the withdrawal of troops from east of the Spine River at the end of September. Rather than enjoy the respite provided by this easing of tensions, General Wilkinson went into action. In terms of the military, he prepared to occupy the land up to the Spine River. Politically, he wrote Senator Samuel Smith, Democratic Republican from Maryland, urging that, quote, you, i.e. Congress, should immediately put a competent character at the head of the War Department and prepare to reinforce me with from three to 5,000 more troops. Rather than accept his role in exacerbating the instability of the past few months by his prolonged absence and abrogation of fulfilling his orders, Wilkinson instead blamed Secretary of War Dearborn, claiming that the forces on the frontier had not been sent, quote, enough mules and tents, and thus were unprepared for combat. We've mentioned Samuel Swartrout before as an associate of Burr's. On the evening of October 8th, he showed up at the army camp on the frontier and, quote, claimed to have come as a volunteer ready to serve against the Spaniards, and he had with him a letter of recommendation from Jonathan Dayton. When Swartrout and Wilkinson got a few moments alone, however, he drew out another message that he quickly handed over to the general, informing him that it was a message from Burr. When Wilkinson deciphered the letter, dated July 29th, he found that Burr's plans were nearing execution. Burr claimed to have the support of Britain and that Commodore Thomas Truxton of Quasi-War fame, episode 2.13 and 2.18 if you missed it, had been recruited and was heading to Jamaica to coordinate with British naval forces there. Burr, meanwhile, would proceed to the West on August 1st to make final preparations, then with various detachments that had been recruited coming together on August 1st on the Ohio River, Burr and his forces would proceed from the Falls of the Ohio on November 15th, aiming to be in Natchez between December 5th and 15th. Burr informed the general that he would be second in command of Burr's force, and once they met up in Natchez, they would decide if their next step would be to take Baton Rouge. As described by Wilkinson biographer Andrew Linkletter, this message, quote, must have chilled his blood. Though Wilkinson had been planning to provoke the Spanish further, and there was still the question as to whether Zebulon Pike's expedition into Spanish territory would be captured and further exacerbate the situation, as Wilkinson wrote was his expected course of events. The fact of the matter was that technically, Spain and the U.S. were still at peace with one another. Further, General Salcedo's recent move to withdraw his forces from the disputed area indicated a willingness on the Spanish part to avoid conflict. It was all up to Wilkinson as to how this would go. If he wanted to throw in his lot with Burr, Wilkinson had just diverted pretty much all forces in the area to Natchitoches, hundreds of miles from New Orleans, so it was open for Burr to take. If he wanted to side with Spain, it was clearly an easy matter to get word across lines to the Spanish leaders and coordinate some sort of ambush or surrender of all the available forces in the area, and again, New Orleans was open to attack. If he wanted to remain loyal to the American government, he could launch an attack on the Spanish headquarters at Nacogdoches, throwing them off guard and possibly ending the immediate threat, as well as allowing for an opportunity to claim Spanish-held land for the U.S. After taking the first half of October to consider his options, General Wilkinson finally took action. On October 18th, he sent Swartwout away from the camp so that he wouldn't see what Wilkinson was up to. First, Wilkinson drafted two documents for President Jefferson, quote, that contained the first authentic news of the Burr conspiracy. Once that was done, and they were sent safely away under the care of Lieutenant Thomas Smith, who had been given, quote, strict instructions that they were to be seen by no one but the president. Wilkinson sent word on October 23rd to the senior officer in New Orleans, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Freeman, warning him to put the city's defense in order before departing that day for the Sabine River with a company of soldiers to make contact with the Spanish leaders in the area. 
Wilkinson proposed for both parties to remove their troops from the disputed area along the Sabine and establish a buffer territory nearly 50 miles wide. Acting under orders from General Sacedo, Colonel Simon de Herrera accepted Wilkinson's offer, and the two signed an agreement on November 6, formally creating, quote, the neutral ground, which would, for almost 20 years, serve as a buffer dividing the two powers in the West. But that, the tensions on the Sabine frontier were resolved, and Wilkinson quickly returned to Natchitoches to focus his attention on providing for the defense of New Orleans. Before we leave General Wilkinson, I think it's important to take a moment to reflect on just how much power to change the course of events Wilkinson had at this point in history. Here is a man whose three presidents had received reports warning that he was not to be trusted, but the fate of the United States and the future of the Mississippi Valley and possibly beyond was in his hands. As noted by Linkletter, quote, it is impossible not to find Jefferson's prolonged dealings with Brigadier General James Wilkinson equivocal and troubling. Knowing his past as a spy, the president still trusted him as commander-in-chief. More than that, he added civil and diplomatic posts to the general's military command until, at a crucial moment, Wilkinson single-handedly possessed enough power to decide the fate of the nation. Around the same time that the president and his cabinet were deliberating what to do about the West, word arrived in Washington, D.C. of Lewis and Clark's safe return to St. Louis. It was likely in the same mail packet that made the administration reconsider their course that Lewis's letter of September 23rd arrived. Thus, though in the midst of crisis, Jefferson could take some comfort from the knowledge that his young protege would soon return to the president's house. Likewise, one can imagine that the president was somewhat relieved when, on November 3rd, the British minister to the U.S., Anthony Mary, presented his letter of recall and took his formal leave of the American government. Now, with any change of government, then as now, there was the possibility of diplomats sent abroad to be recalled. But in Mary's case, as he was firmly in the Pittite camp, the new foreign secretary, Charles James Fox, thought him unacceptable to retain at his post and sent word to Mary a month after his taking office that Mary was to be recalled. The excuse he gave was due to Mary's, quote, long-continued ill health. Naturally, when Mary learned in early May of his recall, he knew it was not out of any concern for him. As Mary biographer Malcolm Lester wrote, quote, although he and his wife had undoubtedly been unhappy in the United States, the circumstances of his recall were mortifying. Still, there was nothing to be done but to pack, and so the Marys did, anticipating that the new minister would arrive in June. Unfortunately for Mary, there was a bit of confusion on the other side of the pond. The original person intended to take the post, Thomas Douglas, the Earl of Selkirk, was instead named as a representative peer in the House of Lords from Scotland. Thus, Fox had to find a replacement. As noted by William Masterson, at the time, quote, because of Yankee bumptiousness and republicanism and the absence of European social amenities, the American appointment remained so unpopular that the few British diplomatic veterans peremptorily declined it. Even junior diplomats accepted a Washington Post, hoping it to be a brief interlude. The man that Fox chose as Mary's replacement, however, was not even a junior diplomat. David Erskine was the son of, quote, a Scottish Foxite lawyer of urbane manners and celebrated wit, and was described as a, quote, typical product of the Whig aristocracy. Again, for Masterson, for this 24-year-old appointed to a diplomatic post on the other side of the Atlantic, quote, his American errand was a substitute for the continental grand tour then unavailable to Englishmen. Though months would go by before Erskine's arrival, as soon as he arrived in Washington, Mary relinquished his post and set about getting his affairs in order. On December 6th, he set sail to return to England, though his wife, due to ill health, remained in Alexandria for months before finally following her husband. As we bid farewell to Mary, I should note that, quote, despite the unfavorable views of American contemporaries, Mary's colleagues in the diplomatic service continued to hold him in high esteem. Indeed, by the fall of 1807, Mary had been given a special assignment to travel to Denmark to engage in talks regarding the British seizure of the Danish fleet 
to prevent it from falling into Napoleon's hands. The mission, however, went nowhere as the Danes refused to even allow Mary into their country. Mary's last diplomatic posting would be as Minister to Sweden, a post that he would only hold for a few months. Again from Lester, quote, Although for his long service, Mary received a pension and the customary gift of gold plate, he did not, at least in the beginning, accept retirement in his 53rd year with equanimity, and he complained that his letters to the Foreign Office went unanswered. Ultimately, though, Mary settled in and turned his attention to matters closer to home. He would live for a few more decades, finally passing away on June 14, 1835. While we can't say for certain if relations between the U.S. and Britain would have been any better at the end of 1806 than they were, had someone other than Mary been in the ministerial post, Mary, in his tenure, did little to promote good relations, even going so far as to intrigue with Burr. We shall have to see in future episodes if his successor had any better luck in turning the tide. Meanwhile, President Jefferson continued to await reports from the West as to what was transpiring there. A week before he was scheduled to send his annual message to Congress, Lieutenant Thomas Smith arrived with Wilkinson's confidential dispatches to Jefferson. Though Wilkinson's reports did not name the chief conspirator, as noted by historian Dumas Malone, they were, quote, calculated to create a horrendous impression in the warning of a conspiracy of folks from across the nation planning to travel to New Orleans, then launch an expedition against, quote, the existing government of Mexico. Though, as Malone notes, quote, there was no reference to the separation of the western states from the rest of the Union or to known designs on the territory of Orleans or the city of New Orleans, Wilkinson asserted that, quote, should this association be formed in opposition to the laws and in defiance of government, then I have no doubt the revolt of this territory will be made an auxiliary step to the main design of attacking Mexico to give it a new master in the place of promised liberty. Given the slow nature of communication and transportation at the time, if Wilkinson was acting without self-interest in mind, it would have been too late for any action or decision made in Washington to affect the outcome. And this was what Wilkinson likely counted on. As his name was increasingly being talked about in public settings and in the press as being part of a conspiracy, Wilkinson knew there was only one way to get out of this scrape. He had to become a hero. Though it would be a few more weeks before Jefferson would learn of the Neutral Ground Agreement, Wilkinson was already in his reports of October 21st and subsequent reports positioning himself as the leader who would save the West. We'll get caught up on what Burr was doing during this time next episode, but for now, let's return to the general. First and foremost, after settling things on the Sabine River, Wilkinson had to take a detour to Natchez to destroy a letter that he had sent there intended for Burr. Couldn't have that getting into the wrong hands, could we? He had the men manning the oars of his boat down the Red River working double time, and they managed to cover 150 miles in three days to get there. Ostensibly, As his excuse for not proceeding directly to New Orleans was his wife Nancy, whose health was still in its decline. During his sojourn in Natchez, Wilkinson fired off letter after letter to defend himself and craft a new narrative, putting him in a heroic light. He also dispatched another special messenger, Isaac Briggs, on November 18th with another report to Jefferson, as well as copies of letters from Burr and former Speaker of the House Jonathan Dayton. As noted by Linkletter, quote, any hope of rescuing Wilkinson's reputation rested with him. Then, Wilkinson set off down the Mississippi River, arriving in New Orleans on November 25th, the same day that Lieutenant Smith arrived at the President's house with Wilkinson's first reports. Upon his arrival in the Crescent City, General Wilkinson set to work repairing the port city's defenses, including, quote, rebuilding the ruined walls of Fort St. Louis and constructing new barriers across strategic roads and canals into the city. Naturally, Governor Claiborne coordinated with Wilkinson and relinquished a small naval force of four gunboats and two bomb catches to the general's command. Prominent merchants in the city were approached about providing, quote, money and men to equip the vessels for action. For his part, Wilkinson did some covert reconnaissance, making contact with two of Burr's agents in New Orleans, James Alexander, and Eric Bullman, 
and pretended to still be in support of the conspiracy to gain all the information that he could from them. Though they were working towards the same goal, Claiborne and Wilkinson were not on the same page as to how to proceed. Claiborne argued that, rather than waiting for Burr's forces to arrive in New Orleans, they should call up the militia and travel upriver to intercept them. Wilkinson, meanwhile, was completely focused on defense and proposed that martial law be declared and the writ of habeas corpus suspended in New Orleans. Habeas corpus is a legal writ guaranteeing that, quote, a judge may inquire into the legality of any form of loss of personal liberty, no matter what form the detention takes or what level of government it occurs at. Habeas corpus protects against groundless detention. Claiborne denied Wilkinson's request that we should note that, beyond any personal objections that he may have had to declaring martial law and suspending habeas corpus, the governor had received word from acting Mississippi Territory Governor Meade, as well as Andrew Jackson, that Wilkinson was not to be trusted. Claiborne did act to institute, quote, an embargo on ships leaving the port during the emergency. This, however, was deemed insufficient by Wilkinson, and on December 14th, he took action in what his own biographer described as, quote, what amounted to a military coup in the city. We'll learn exactly what action Wilkinson took next time, but for now, we must return to Washington, D.C. before we part ways. After receiving Wilkinson's initial reports, President Jefferson decided that he had to take some action at least, even if it wasn't quite as bold as he may have liked. Thus, on November 27, 1806, he issued a proclamation informing the public of information that he had received of citizens that, quote, are conspiring and confederating together to begin and set on foot, provide and prepare the means for a military expedition or enterprise against the dominions of Spain. Because of these reports, quote, I have therefore thought fit to issue this, my proclamation, warning and enjoining all faithful citizens who have been led without due knowledge or consideration to participate in the said unlawful enterprises to withdraw from the same without delay, and commanding all persons whatsoever engaged or concerned in the same to cease all further proceedings therein, as they will answer the contrary at their peril, and incur prosecution with all the rigors of the law. At this point, though, that was all of the action that the president could take. He had sent warnings to governors, the commanding general of the army was on the scene to take charge of military forces, and a special agent was working to track down Burr. All Jefferson could do was sit at the president's house, attend to the mundane business of government, and wait to see what happened hundreds of miles away. In the waiting, though, he was joined a month after issuing his proclamation by an absent companion. Even in the midst of the crises of late 1806, Jefferson had been thinking of Meriwether Lewis and his imminent return. The president talked with Treasury Secretary Albert Gallatin about what would be a proper post for Lewis to take up now that he had returned from a successful expedition. He couldn't go back to just being Jefferson's private secretary, after all. They both agreed that Lewis should be named as governor of the Louisiana Territory now that Wilkinson was being moved out of that office. But Gallatin knew that Jefferson had in mind for Lewis to take some time to put together his journals from the expedition for publication. Thus, he suggested that a secretary should be appointed to serve as an acting governor until Lewis completed his work on the journals and could then travel to St. Louis to take up the governorship. As noted by Stephen Ambrose, quote, As Lewis approached Washington, the excitement mounted. Lewis's progress was slow, at least in part because at every town and village, the residents insisted on some sort of dinner and ball to honor him. The young explorer was reunited with his mother and family in Virginia on December 13th, and, after celebrations in Charlottesville, he proceeded northward. Finally. Late in the day on December 28th, Meriwether Lewis returned to Washington, D.C. after having traversed the continent of North America. Lewis would, of course, stay at the president's house during his time in Washington so that Jefferson could get a first-hand account of the journey that Lewis and his compatriots had undertaken the last couple of years through the Western lands that Jefferson had been fascinated by for his entire life 
and believed were key to the future of the nation if, of course, they could be brought into and retained in the American fold. It is here that we will leave the president as we draw this episode to a close. I'd like to thank Steve Guerra again for providing the intro quote for this episode, and be sure to check out History of the Papacy and Beyond the Big Screen wherever fine podcasts can be found. Thanks also to our audio editor, Andrew Foncook, for his work on this episode. Special thanks to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this episode. We've actually had a couple of reviews come in that I wanted to highlight. The first was a five-star review titled Thoroughly Thorough from Kenny Ryan. The review read as follows, quote, Are you the kind of history nerd who wants to know everything about a topic? This podcast is for you. Nobody provides a more encompassing deep dive on presidential history than Jerry. Thank you so much, Kenny. And yes, that is exactly the kind of podcast that I always aim to create. So I'm glad to hear that it is resonating with those who also appreciate the deep dive. The second review is a five-star review entitled Informative, Well Done from Matt and reads as follows, quote, I enjoy this podcast. The host is thorough and articulate. Thank you so much, Matt. And thanks to all of you who have left a rating and review. If you haven't had a chance yet, please take a moment to go to Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or any other podcast provider that has that option and let folks know why they too should give presidencies a try. It's a quick and easy way to give this podcast a boost and support the work. If you have a question or comment, you can reach out to me in multiple ways. I'm available via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also connect with me on social media if you haven't already. I'm on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. Thank you so much for listening. I'm currently anticipating seven more episodes in the Jefferson series, including the post-presidency episode, so I hope you'll stick around to see what his final couple of years in office have in store. Believe me, it's a rather action-packed couple of years. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creo so, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.